Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham and this podcast is the venue for me to engage the issues taking place in God's world through the lens of God's worldview. And today I am going to pick up the issue of all issues that is dominating not just our culture but really the world. And that is the topic of race and racism that has emerged in response to the killing of George Floyd. I already have preached a sermon on it shortly after Floyd's death, and you are welcome to listen to that. It's on our website, tcpca.org. But I did want to take the opportunity to offer a more long-form analysis of this historic um, moment in our nation's history. And the way I want to do it is to go deeper into the applications I made in my sermon. Essentially, the way I applied things in my sermon was a word of admonishment to uh, those who don't like to talk about race and those who really like to talk about race. That was my clumsy attempt to diagnose what our divide currently is. You see, uh, this discussion, it seems to me, uh, this discussion has officially moved past our normal divides. So in the past, I might be able to break this down by conservative and progressive or Southern culture, Northern culture, or the older people and the younger people and so forth. But I'm noticing that this one is different. I am seeing things that I thought I never would see. For example, here in Kentucky, uh, there's a town called Corbin, Kentucky, which is historically about as racist of a town as you can find. Literally, there was a time in its history when white residents gathered up all the black residents, forced them onto a train, and literally shipped them out of town. And now in Corbin, in Corbin, they are having Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, it wasn't long ago that Black Lives Matter was viewed as a far-left extremist statement, and now they're marching under its banner in Corbin. And so I just think... I just think this this is this is turned into something I could never imagine. It is not following the predictable lines of culture. So what I did in my sermon is all I knew to do is just to speak to two groups, those who don't like to talk about what's going on and those who really like to talk about what's going on, meaning those who don't agree, don't support, don't welcome this moment, and those who do agree, support, and welcome this moment. And the point... I was making in my sermon and I'm making now is that the moment itself has become the dividing line. It is so significant. It so transcends our normal tribes that the cultural moment itself has become the dividing line, the focal point that is reorienting our culture. And so I would like to speak more in depth to those on either side of this monumental moment in our culture's history. Now, one quick caveat to mention is that normally this podcast is for the public square, not just Christians. But in this, I am talking to Christians specifically. That's not you. Then I would love for you to listen and hear what I hope is a thoughtful and winsome Christian perspective on the topic that everyone's talking about. Having said that, I I do feel a real burden to speak to Christians specifically right now. Because to be honest, I am concerned how Christians on both sides are responding. I am not sure we're ready. I'm not sure we are prepared for what is upon us. Many have even admitted that to me. Already, I've I've had people say things like, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to do. And this doesn't come as a surprise to me. 
Because when an issue goes from little to no discussion to becoming a discussion that is demanded of all of us, it's a bewildering experience. And to our shame, uh, race has been neglected, uh, at times untouchable within the conservative Christian culture. So now many find themselves lost in the chaotic waters of this moment, not even knowing how to swim. And so I suppose that's probably the real group of folks that I'm speaking to. And I think this is probably the biggest group, those caught in the middle, not knowing what to do. They want to take this moment seriously. They really do. And yet they have reservations about how this moment is unfolding. In my conversations, that might be the biggest demographic. But I think in addressing both sides of the divide, I will give those in the middle much needed nuance that they are trying to find. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I am deeply burdened to help Christians navigate what is upon us. So let's dive in. Let me sum up my applications to both sides of the divide with a simple statement. I hope to persuade both to follow Jesus into this moment. I think both desperately need to be reminded that we are followers of Jesus, but following Jesus comes with a different application depending upon which side of the divide you find yourself. One side needs to actually follow Jesus into this moment. We've got to go there. The other side needs to make sure that it's actually Jesus that they are following into this moment. And I'm going to start with the latter group because I think that will best serve the flow of my argument. So in this episode, I speak to those who agree, support, and want this moment in our nation. Then in the next episode, and by the way, my request is that you don't just listen to one without the other. That's really important. One of these is probably going to have you amening. The other is probably going to have you squirming, and you need both. We all need both. I need both. So next episode, I will speak to the other side of the divide. Um, The other thing to mention, I feel like I'm qualifying this to death, Uh, be forewarned that I am lifting my normal time constraints that I place on podcasts. This is just too important. Um, We just, the church needs, so we need guidance, we need instruction, we need discipleship. Um, And so I really want the freedom to be as thorough as possible. So these may go longer. Okay, to those who have no problem discussing racism, who see this as a real problem in our country, who acknowledge systemic evil, who rightfully want to confess and repent of their complicity, who black out their social media feeds, who have no problem saying Black Lives Matter, who have no problem participating in Black Lives Matter protests, my Christian friends taking this very seriously. First, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your love, your compassion, your seriousness over justice. Thank you for your zeal to hate what God hates and love what God loves. It is a beautiful thing. Would you consider adding to your zeal a more robust understanding and approach to this? And the reason why I say add to your zeal is because I don't want what I'm about to say to throw a wet blanket on what God is stirring in your hearts. Don't let this die. Even after this moment calms down a bit, still don't let this issue die. But to be as transparent as I can with you, I have serious concerns about the way many Christians are approaching this issue. Again, my admonition is to follow Jesus. So let's make sure that it's actually Jesus that we are following. 
I would like to do my best to help you understand what is taking place in our world right now and what many bleeding heart Christians are unknowingly embracing. You hear terms like woke and whiteness and white supremacy and white privilege and systemic racism and critical race theory and intersectionality. You you hear these terms, and you may not be familiar with these terms, and you may not know what's behind all these terms, but you really do need to be informed on this. Because what is behind all of it is nothing less than a competing gospel that is a false gospel that has no room for Jesus and his worldview, and in the end, will destroy the very world it is seeking to heal. Now that may sound extreme to you, but I'm, I'm being honest when I say that. Allow me to explain. For those who know me, you know I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I would not say what I'm about to say if I did not wholeheartedly believe it to be true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being attacked right now by an unseen ideology that is taking over not just our culture, but our churches as well. To understand this ideology uh, from a worldview perspective, we have to go all the way back to Karl Marx. Hang with me through this history lesson because it's, it's really, really important, okay? It's not necessary to go into the details of Marxism, but you do have to understand the fundamental tenets of it. Marx was a materialist. If you have been following along in my podcast, materialist is the essence of uh, the secularist, meaning Marx believed all that existed was this material, physical world. He denied transcendence. Now, when you fully embrace this reductionist view of reality, then you have to explain things that were previously explained by transcendence. So if you don't have a doctrine of original sin, a transcendent reason for evil and suffering. If you don't have that, if you reject that and believe that we are just morally neutral physical bodies, then you have to come up with another theory to explain the breadth of evil and suffering in this world. Well, Marx and um, to an extent his partner Friedrich Engels' answer to that question was the evil of power. What's wrong with the world is not sin, but power that leads to oppression. Now, Marx uh, viewed this power struggle fundamentally through the economics. Um, As we will see in a moment, Marxism has moved beyond economics, but in its original state, it was an economic theory. And so Marx blamed the world's ills on the struggle between the haves and the have-nots. He labeled them the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The bourgeoisie were the owners of wealth and power, thus the oppressors, and the proletariat were the workers funding the bourgeoisie, thus the oppressed. And that imbalance of power, that inequality of the oppressors and the oppressed, was the fundamental problem with the world. Marx argued that the reason why every human civilization ultimately led to suffering is that every human civilization has been ordered to form an oppressed minority exploited by an oppressive majority. And the solution was a fundamental reorienting of civilization. In other words, humanity needed to progress into its next frontier of evolution, where there is no class structure and all are equal. And so oppression was Marx's replacement to original sin, 
liberation was Marx's replacement to salvation from sin, and a utopian society without inequality was Marx's replacement to heaven without sin. And all of this is explained in his infamous Communist Manifesto. Uh, We are conditioned to see the word communism as a bad thing, and rightfully so. But you have to understand that it was originally proposed with a blissful utopian hopefulness. Again, from the materialist worldview, there is no heaven, and communism was the attempt to create heaven on earth. Well, it was tried, and it has failed, miserably so. Every time, the utopian dream has devolved into a dystopian nightmare. And of course, this is because sin is a thing. Sinners are a thing. And we can't self-produce heaven on earth. When you give sinners the power that communism gives them, it never goes well. You see, the idea of communism is that it would first have to force equality via the coercive power of the state. So you can have the revolution of the working class. You can have them rise up against their oppressors and overthrow their oppressors, but then what? To have true equality, private ownership, which leads to uh, class structures of oppressors and oppressed, all of that has to go. And so the revolution leads to a state that takes over ownership, takes over religion, takes over education, takes over everything that led to the old way of doing society and ushers in a new way of doing society. And then communism would eventually move from its first stage of kind of forced equality to the next stage where power and ownership would be handed back to the collective people who were now ready for uh, the new world of common ownership and power. And voila, you have heaven on earth. Sounds good in theory, unless the Bible is actually true, unless we actually are sinners. If so, then when you give sinners the ultimate power that communism first demands, well, then it will lead to evil and exploitation vastly greater than what communism was trying to address. And every time this is proven true. Listen, folks, the data is in. Communism does not work, and it leads to unimaginable evil. Now, what in the world does this have to do with racism in 2020 America? Actually, far more than you realize. So stay with me here. Marxist theory eventually evolved. For our purposes, the crucial evolution took place at what is known as the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School was a school of social research that examined and critiqued uh, traditional Marxism and why it failed. And the foundational conclusion moved Marxism away from an economic theory into a philosophical or ideological theory. This is what is commonly referred to as cultural Marxism. But the more formal name that you need to be aware of is called critical theory. Now, here's the essence of critical theory. The bourgeoisie, the the powerful elites, not only owned all the money, they owned the narrative. The ideals of the powerful set the terms of society as the dominant ideology. So in order to achieve equality, you not only have to take on the capital of the powerful, you have to take on their narrative. You have to critique, thus critical theory. You have to critique, you have to deconstruct the deeply embedded assumptions that society simply takes for granted which are used by the powerful to maintain power 
and further exploitation. The term they used to define these ideological assumptions is the cultural hegemony. The hegemony is the reigning narrative of society. The beliefs, the values, the priorities, the desires, the rituals, all of these things that every society has. If you visit another culture, that disorienting feeling that you experience as you encounter that culture is you encountering a different hegemony. They think differently, they value differently, they prioritize differently. Every society has its own cultural narrative. And according to Marxist theory, it's the powerful elites who, through their ownership of media, entertainment, education, and so forth, they form and determine the hegemony. And thus the hegemony always serves to reinforce the interests and power of those in control. And so critical theory turned Marxism into an ideological revolution. If we are going to take on the powerful oppressors, we have to take on their hegemonic power structures. But critical theory takes on different forms depending on the nature of the hegemony. and Depending upon the nature of the culture and the cultural narrative, it takes on different forms. It, it, needs, it, it needs different critiques. Now we are getting closer to our current cultural moment. According to Marxist theory, when you evaluate the hegemony of Western culture in general, but American culture more specifically, what is the reigning hegemony, the reigning dominant narrative and ideology that needs to be dismantled? Whiteness. White supremacy. Now we move from critical theory to critical race theory, which applies specifically to our culture. According to critical race theory, America is the story of white people oppressing people of color, whether that be the original natives or the enslaved black population. At one time, this hegemony was institutionalized through slavery and Jim Crow, and those were abolished, but the hegemony itself has yet to be abolished. White supremacy remains. White privilege remains. So sure, the Civil War ended slavery, but the Confederate flag and Confederate statues remain everywhere as a reminder of who retains power. Sure, our society can elect a Barack Obama, but the halls of Congress and our courts are still dominated by white people. Sure, we, we have integrated schools, but the history and authorship, the narrative taught in these schools is a white history from white authors and a white narrative. Sure, black athletes are now free to make millions, but the ownership of the teams remains white. Sure, black people can be successful in America, but to do so, they must learn to integrate and assimilate into white culture because successful culture is still white culture. And so if you look at all these protests and rioting, we are witnessing. And you ask the question, what do they want? What is their objective? Slavery is gone. Jim Crow is gone. There is no more institutionalized racism. In fact, the only remaining legislation based on race is affirmative action. So what more do they want? What they want is a new hegemony. They want a new narrative. They want a new culture. They want a new story. They want to abolish the white supremacy hegemony the same way we once abolished white supremacy slavery. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a noble cause. 
and the reason why so many Christians are joining the cause. And in a moment, I will affirm and also critique what's taking place right now. But hang tight, because we're not quite done with the analysis. I know this is a lot. Thanks for staying with me. We're not done. The the analysis is incomplete until you are aware of one more significant development. Critical race theory is insufficient in itself to explain the nuance of oppression in America. You have to consider not just race, but gender. And this is where feminism comes into play. Although there are statistically more females than males in our country, females are still viewed as a minority. Why is that? Because males hold the power. And it's out of feminism that another critical theory comes into play called intersectionality. You may have heard that term before. Intersectionality comes from a feminist named Kimberly Crenshaw, who wanted to expand the idea of female oppression beyond its traditional bounds. And her theory has gone mainstream. Intersectionality takes critical theory and gets crazy with it. According to intersectionality, there is more at play to American oppression than just race. You have to consider things like gender, of course, but also sexual orientation and religion and and so many things, all the way down to body types. All of these factors work together as different intersections, thus intersectionality, different intersections of oppression. For example, as I record this, uh, J.K. Rowling is facing the mob of cancel culture because she affirmed biological sex as a fixed reality. And they are coming after her with the same severity and intensity as those fighting for racial justice. Why is that? Because according to intersectionality, transgender rights is on the same level as racial rights. And intersectionality says you can't fight for one without fighting for all. So intersectionality takes oppression way beyond race. According to intersectionality, what is the fundamental problem? Who is on top as the oppressor that must be overturned? According to classical Marxism, it's the wealthy. According to critical race theory, it's white people. According to intersectionality, it is white, cisgender, meaning you identify with the uh, gender of your birth, white, cisgender, able-bodied, meaning you're not handicapped, able-bodied, non-obese, Christian males. I may have missed some intersections there, but you get the point. What's wrong with America? Me. Quite literally, it's me. I am a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, could work on my figure but not obese, conservative Christian male, who, as if it couldn't get worse, also happens to be raising four little white boy oppressors in my home. I get to claim zero intersections of oppression, therefore I'm what's wrong. Well, you know, actually that's not true because I I, I have seen in literature— uh, recently that includes height into the discussion of intersectionality, and I'm only 5'8", so I get to check uh, the uh, the height oppression box. And quite frankly, I'm ready for all you uh, tall people to start standing in solidarity with me. Um, although, <laughs> although I suppose if you did st- stand with me, it would only magnify and reinforce my oppression as a short man. So I need you to, I suppose, kind of bend over with me. Anyway, my, my height discrimination aside, I am, I am the very definition of the new bourgeoisie. And the cultural revolution will not be complete until people like me lose our power 
people under me gain power and we reach Marx's original vision of utopian equality. I want to reiterate that I am not a conspiracy theorist. This, this is exactly what we are witnessing before our eyes. These theories used to be bound within the halls of academia, but the academy has gone viral. And people who have no concept of critical theory are embracing it without critique or hesitation. Good-hearted, well-intended Christians everywhere are reinterpreting the biblical vision of justice, which we will eventually get to, into a vision of justice that would literally warm the heart of Karl Marx, who hated Christianity in every way. So let's move from analysis to critique. First, let's start with affirmation. There are seeds of truth here that the Christian worldview absolutely affirms as common ground, and I will give you three, the three most significant. First, critical theory rightfully acknowledges the undeniable instinct of humans to dominate one another. While I think it lacks the resources to explain why we oppress, and that's where the doctrine of original sin is so important, Nevertheless, critical theory recognizes the evil of oppression in every human society, and it's true of every society. That's what we do. We oppress each other. Secondly, uh, critical theory rightly acknowledges the undeniable instinct of humans to oppress along the lines of race. So I'm going to show my cards here and say I, I've got little patience for intersectionality as a theory because I'm just too brokenhearted over the devastation of racial injustice. I, I'm willing to discuss transgenderism. In fact, I've recorded podcasts on it, and I'm willing to love anyone who struggles um, with gender dysphoria, and, and we can talk about that. We can have that discussion, but I refuse to patronize my black brothers and sisters and further compound their pain by comparing the transgender struggle to black struggle in America. The two aren't in the same ballpark. Back to what I was saying. Sorry. Critical theory, particularly critical race theory, is right to point out that our tribalism and oppression does tend to form around the color of our skin, historically speaking. Okay, finally, thirdly, and most significantly, critical theory is absolutely correct that there is a hegemony that exists based upon the worldview of those in power, meaning Christians and critical theorists alike are right to affirm systemic powers at play within every culture. So do I believe that white supremacy exists? And I'm not just talking about it in a fascist subculture. Does white supremacy exist in the air we breathe? Yes. Yes, it does. Do I believe white privilege exists? Yep. Do I believe white culture forms the dominant narrative of our nation? Yep. This stuff is very real. The hegemonic influence in this nation favors me and my culture, and I have spoken publicly about that. But I believe that because I believe the Bible, not because I'm a cultural Marxist. And in my next episode, when I challenge those on the other side of the divide, I will aim to explain these things from a biblical perspective and worldview. So in these three, we agree. Oppression is real. Racial oppression specifically is real. And a systemic hegemony that protects and reinforces racial oppression is real. And this is why uh, Christians read books like White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. This is why people get into D'Angelo's work and say, oh yeah, yeah, this sounds right. This sounds like something I should affirm. 
But what's on the other side of D'Angelo's theories is the complete undoing of the Christian faith, and I don't say that lightly. Folks, the Christian worldview is more than sufficient to diagnose what critical theory diagnoses without embracing critical theory's implications, which proved disastrous, not just for the Christian faith, but for the world. So let me share the core problems here, my core concerns, and and really I can boil them down to two. Critical theory is destructive and unproductive. First, critical theory is destructive theory. And the reason why is that it is a false gospel. Make no mistake, this has moved from theory to religion in our culture. It is a social religion, and many Christians are unknowingly following uh, this new religion. Allow me to compare and contrast the Christian faith to cultural Marxism, and tell me if you don't see this taking place all around you, and perhaps even in your own life. Critical race theory has its own version of original sin, and it is white supremacy, which I have already explained in detail. So what do you do with the problem? Well, what I haven't gotten to yet is the buzzword you may have heard um, thrown out everywhere these days, woke. To be woke is to be born again. Woke is to our culture what regeneration is to Christianity. Your eyes have been opened to finally see the truth, and the truth is the tenets of critical theory that I've been explaining. You see these things for the first time. You finally see what you could not see before. You finally know what you did not know before. You see your white privilege. You see your complicity in white supremacy. You see systemic prejudice that is all around you. You are awakened, or to put it in cultural vernacular, you are woke. Next, it's time to practice the new religion. Make no mistake, it is not enough just to be woke. (laughs) Woke without works is dead wokeness. (laughs) By By your fruit, our culture will know that you are truly woke. And so begins your adherence to a law that can never be fulfilled, the law of political correctness. And so this is where virtue signaling comes in um, as you practice your religion to prove that you truly are woke. The social media posts, the Black Lives Matter catechisms, the confession of privilege, the renouncement of systems, the kneeling before the oppressed, and on and on goes the desperate attempt to be absolved of the sin of your oppressive ways by progressive leaders who are the priests of this woke religion and hold the power to forgive. Now listen, let me be clear. Do I think it's wrong to post on social media? No, I have and I will. Do I think it's wrong to declare Black Lives Matter? No. I'll say it right now. Black lives matter. No qualification. No all lives matter. Black lives matter. Do I think it's wrong to join the protest? Nope, you should. Do I think it's wrong to recognize, admit, and apologize for our racist past and racist present? Nope, you should. And in the next episode, that's where I'm going. But friends, beware lest you forsake the gospel for the new self-righteousness that is upon us, which is guarded by merciless social justice Pharisees. You see, unlike the gospel where justification precedes sanctification, within the religion of the woke, sanctification precedes justification. And just like every religion, it is never, ever, ever, ever going to be enough. If you think Your MLK quote on Insta, attending a Black Lives Matter protest, sending an email from your business expressing solidarity. If you think these things are enough to absolve you, you are in for a rude and destructive awakening. There is no end to the demand of the social justice warrior. Dr. Carl Ellis, a 
a black scholar who I really, really commend to you in this area, says this of critical race theory and intersectionality. Quote, These social religions curve in on themselves with increasingly narrow and performative orthodoxies. They create ever small circles of those considered authentic, adherers who represent the truest version of their secular piety. So they just, what he's saying is they just got one demand after another, creating ever smaller circles uh, for you to be considered true adherence to the social religions. He says they belittle those who do not perform the corresponding rites properly, and they damn those who reject the ideology altogether. End quote. Dr. Carl Truman says it more bluntly. If you have an unconditional and uncritical commitment to critical theory, you must realize you have the tiger by the tail. If at any moment you want to let go of the project, you will find that you and yours are soon to be devoured by it. They're right. If our woke culture can turn on J.K. Rowling, it can and it will eventually turn on you. Justification is unattainable. It is a journey of perpetual repentance meeting demand after demand that never yields salvation from your oppressing sins. And as soon as you say, you know, I'm not comfortable going there, I feel like that's taking it too far, you will be swiftly condemned under the fierce retribution of our cancel culture. Friends, there is a better way. It is called the gospel. I am justified, therefore I fight for justice. Oh, how much better news is that than I fight for justice to justify myself. And here's the thing. Forget what critical theory means for you. Consider what it means for the cause itself. It's not just destructive. Secondly, it's unproductive. It simply does not have the resources as a worldview to bring about the justice it promises. The foundational flaw of critical theory is its diagnosis of the problem. At the end of the day, all Marxist theories come undone because they are seeking to address the fruit while neglecting the root. It cannot begin with oppression and oppressors rather than sin and sinners who oppress. For as we desperately try to mitigate the symptoms of the cancer and not the cancer itself, the cancer will continue to spread and destroy. This is what Marxist thought has always done and why Marxist theories have always proved inept. If you remember in my diagnosis, I said that according to intersectionality, I am the problem with the world. You know, it might come as a surprise to you that I actually agree with that. However, not because I'm white, heterosexual, cisgender male, but because the Bible diagnoses me as the chief of sinners. There's a famous story where the Times invited eminent thinkers to opine on the question, what's wrong with the world? While many waxed eloquently about their ideals, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian scholar who was known for his wit, he wrote back, Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That is the diagnosis according to the biblical worldview. It begins there. It doesn't end there, but it absolutely must begin there. The most foundational systemic evil is original sin, and it is a system in which all of us participate and perpetuate. And from there, as I will demonstrate in the next episode, we absolutely can arrive at the same conclusions that critical theory is seeking to propose. But it matters how we get there. 
to quote Dr. Carl Ells again, People are broken sinners. Broken people make broken families. Broken families make broken communities. Broken communities make broken societies. Broken societies make broken systems. And broken systems keep people in bondage. Physical, social, and spiritual. This is the reality of our fallen world. End quote. So yes, systemic injustice exists. That is where sin eventually ends. But according to critical theory, that is where sin begins. Let me repeat that because that's important. Yes, systemic injustice exists. That is where sin eventually ends. But according to critical theory, that is where sin begins. And if it begins there, then the solution likewise begins there. The solution is an external enemy that must be overthrown, which leads to a zero-sum game of power. The oppressive class must be divested of power in order for the oppressed class to gain power. So it becomes a competition of dominance via identity politics. But there is no end to that competition, only a new dominant class that will likewise oppress. At the end of the day, the goal of Marxist thought is a transfer of power, which means that ironically, the end goal of Marxism is more oppression of a different kind. We need a better way forward. A way that recognizes what critical theory recognizes, but because it has a different diagnosis, comes with a different solution. And the key is this. The problem is not the dominant class. The problem is our proclivity to dominate in the first place. The problem is not oppression. The problem is why we oppress in the first place. Now, it's at this point where we start approaching the failures of evangelicalism and why critical theory has become so compelling to many Christians without them knowing it. Because the evangelical answer has wrongly been, well, since it's a sin issue, then the answer to all this is just evangelism. We just need to change hearts and this will go away. That is so inept. And if we don't reimagine our visions of justice, then we will continue to lose Christians, particularly our youth, to the social justice warrior movement. The Christian worldview has the resources to fight for social justice, and in the forthcoming podcast, I will outline that as a better way forward. But bringing it back to the purpose of this podcast, to those Christians who have been awakened or are now woke, to use our cultural language, who are now woke to the reality of racism in our land, who are brokenhearted and want to see change, who want to fight for change themselves, again, I say thank you. Don't lose that, but there is a better way. I know the church has failed to present that in a compelling fashion, and worldly social justice is the only way you see, but there is another way, and that way is Jesus. Follow Jesus and Jesus alone into this moment. Only Jesus liberates the oppressed by abolishing oppression itself. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility. Sin remains the problem, and Jesus remains the solution, and we can never, ever let that go. We must hold those two convictions. Now again, I know that the evangelical church for the most part has failed to give a compelling vision of what that solution looks like in a practical way. How do we implement that? Okay, Jesus is the answer. What does that mean? And like I said, I plan to offer 
something that I hope helps, but my only objective in this episode is for you to not forsake Jesus for the cheap imitation of our culture's social justice strategies. And I hope I have at least persuaded you there. Now on the next episode, and again, uh, don't listen to this one without the other, um, I'm going to speak to those on the other side. And then in one more episode, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to put forth what I hope will be a way forward rooted in Jesus that we can all get behind. But I think that's more than enough for today's episode. Uh, Jesus cares about justice for the oppressed. 10,000 times more than Karl Marx. Jesus cares. Therefore, Christians should care. Let's just make sure we care for justice in the same way Jesus cared for justice. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Every Square Inch. Every Square Inch.